Before we begin today's show, I'd like to offer a warning that the material in today's program may be graphic and disturbing. Keeping up with the abuse of Christian girls in Muslim Pakistan has become exceedingly difficult. Hardly does one story of abduction, enslavement, rape, forced conversion, torture, and or murder appear before another follows it, and another, and another. These are the words of a man who's dedicated himself to knowing as much as possible about the Middle East and is one of the top specialists and scholars on Islam in the country. His name is Raymond Abraham. If you by rare chance have not heard of him, he is a widely published author, public speaker, and award-winning journalist and renowned consultant. His most recent book includes Sword and Scimitar, 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and the West. Another of his books includes Crucified Again, Exposing Islam's New War on Christians. He and his work have appeared across nearly every sector of our media landscape, from CNN and MSNBC to C-SPAN, Fox, PBS, Al Jazeera, and NPR, along with countless others. Abraham guest lectures at universities, including the U.S. Army War College and the National Defense Intelligence College. He's briefed governmental agencies such as U.S. Strategic Command and the Defense Intelligence Agency, provides expert testimony for Islam-related lawsuits, and has testified before Congress regarding the conceptual failures that dominate American discourse concerning Islam and the worsening plight of Christian minorities throughout the Islamic world. Since July 2011, Abraham has been producing a monthly report entitled Muslim Persecution of Christians, dedicated to chronicling the abuses and slaughters Christians experience throughout the Islamic world. In certain respects, these monthly reports, there are over 100 of them, are the quote, live, unquote, ongoing continuation of his 2013 book, crucified again. And he's here to talk to us about these stories. Welcome, Raymond Abraham. It is such a pleasure to have you on our show today. Thanks for having me, MK. I'm happy to be with you. Before we go into these very important stories, you clearly have a rich background when it comes to your understanding of Islamic culture. I would love you to share a bit about your own personal story behind why this has become such a passionate topic for you and your own inside track on understanding Islamic culture. Sure. Um, yes, uh, as you point out, I have a basically a personal and professional interest, and both of them really have complemented each other in the context of learning about the Islamic world. I was born here in the United States, but my parents both were born and raised, of course, in Egypt. They're what's called Coptic Christians, um, really the oldest native group to the land of Egypt. Um, and they came here, and, this is, and I was born here, but then I was raised, of course, bilingually. So I spoke Arabic and uh, I spoke English of the American variety. And um, <clears throat> I went back and forth visiting and stayed at, you know, in some parts of the Middle East for extended periods of time. So I have a lot of experience with uh, that part of the world. Here in the U.S., I also majored in history, but with an emphasis increasingly on the, on the Middle East and the Islamic world. So my master's degree, I, my MA thesis was about Islam. Um, and then I went later on to Georgetown University, which is one of the leading schools about Islam in the Middle East in general. Of course, they have a political correct side, which I also learned about. 
and I studied there for a little bit. I also went to Catholic University when I was in Washington, D.C. I was working there at the Library of Congress in the actual Near East uh, Division or the African and Middle Eastern Division, as it was called. So that was also very edifying because I was surrounded by all these books in Arabic and Turkish and Persian and various languages, books that you can't access anywhere. In fact, that's where I found written written texts by Al-Qaeda back in 2004, which I ended up translating, actually, and it was, it was published in 2007 by Doubleday, the Al-Qaeda reader. So all that, you know, I've just had that interest. And then when 9-11 happened, I was still... That's when I was working on my master's thesis, and it was about history, as I said, about the first conflict between the Islamic world and the Christian world or the Byzantine Empire. And immediately I was just interested after the 9-11 attacks because I listened to what Osama bin Laden was saying. And what really got to me was the continuity between the things that he was saying and uh, basically the signaling that he was giving the Muslim world and what I had been studying about history and it was really something that I thought lots of people didn't connect. He would say things, formulaic things in Arabic, and it would be translated in English. But people didn't understand that those were words that were lifted, for example, from what Muhammad said or from what pivotal leaders of the Islamic world said. At any rate, that's you know a quick sum of my background. And since then, I've uh, you know since about 2009, I've been exclusively focused on researching and writing about um, Islam, and specifically one of my fields of, that I specialize in is the Muslim persecution of Christians, because that's, um, it's, it just doesn't get any time, any, any relevant time in the media, and yet it's a massive um, pandemic, to use that word, because it's happening all around the world, wherever, you know, of course, all around the Islamic world. But even in areas that are not Islamic, but where Muslims have a growing population, including in Europe, for example, um, you know, the last well-documented report, which came out last month in January, comes out every annually, every January, every once a year, every January. It, I think the number was 330 million Christians around the world are being persecuted. And about 80 percent of that is done in the Islamic world, which itself is telling um, so that's that uh, that long story, and that's what I've been focused on and working in writing. And in fact, it was through that uh, monthly report you now do, entitled Muslim Persecution of Christians, uh, that I was made aware of your work, and uh, specifically a story that you just covered regarding Pakistan. Can you speak to that story a little bit or share, and or whatever stories you have uncovered from this research you've been doing, and, and share th what you think are the most important stories that you think the audience needs to hear sure the story from pakistan is really em you know, emblematic of what i'm discussing so pakistan of course is a muslim nation it's something like 98 percent muslim and you have maybe one percent christian one percent hindu um the the christians especially but the hindu the hindus also to an extent are really being persecuted in a bad way and the article you're referring to which came out recently i focused on what's happening to girls christian girls and it's just, it's, you know, the Christians in general are treated as subhumans and the women are just seen as free game. So they are habitually just abducted right off the street in broad daylight or right from their parents' homes. 
and when their parents try to do something, they you know the Muslims shoot guns, and and then the the you know bystanders just stand by and do nothing. The police do nothing, um, and, and and they give and sometimes they even threaten the parents um, from pushing the case. At any rate, the women get abducted, and then after that, it's just rape. Some of the stories I discussed, which were very recent, women were chained to the wall for months, or in this case, one little girl. In another, also very recent story, two sisters who were married but worked at you know at this place. The Muslim employers, two men, um, harassed them continuously, told them convert to Islam and divorce her husbands, and the, and the women wouldn't, and they had children as well. Um, so they abducted them, tied them up, raped them, and then strangled them to death and their bodies were found a month later floating in a sewer um but the problem is this is not this isn't an aberration this is happening very common um something like a thousand girls are actually abducted every year in pakistan the lucky ones are simply forced to convert to islam and and then quote-unquote married to their abductors um and like and so this just gives you an idea and again, uh, it's important to underscore that it's not just that some people are doing this. It's the legal system. In one instance in Pakistan, one of these girls actually broke free from her abductors and made it back to her parents. And the the court, actually, the highest court in Lahore, I think, actually ordered the girl back to the man because he forged some fake certificate saying she married him, which also... Uh, you know, she, in Pakistan, I think you have to be at least 16 or 17 to get married. And she was clearly like 12 or 13. And so, I mean, that alone, visual evidence wasn't enough. And so they cited it. And, and, and you know, very horrific story. The parents are screaming and crying and the girls are being torn away from the mom and so forth. So that's the, um, the one of the aspects of what's happening to Christians in Pakistan. But like I said, that's paradigmatic of what's happening to Christians all throughout the Islamic world. Um, as I was saying, if you look at uh, the persecution that's happening to Christians, which is really growing every um, every year, it gets worse and worse. Uh, most of it, there's, for example, that report I was re- referring to, it mentions um, the, top, the 50 worst nations in which to be a, a Christian in the world. And the top 10, it's just very bad. It's horrific where you can just get killed on sight. Okay, so anyway, in that top 50, something like 38, I count it, I, I count it every year, like 38 or 39 are Islamic or have a large Muslim population, which is responsible for um, the persecution. For example, Nigeria, that's about half Muslim and half Christian. Um, so, and then the top 10, which is really bad, or in this case, they, they, it was the top 12, which is considered extreme persecution. Something like, I think, nine or 10, I think, were actually Muslim nations. So, you know, and all this goes back, you know, if, if a person wants to know, well, why is this happening? Um, it really goes back to a bunch of doctrines and teachings in Islam that it's politically incorrect to mention even or even say because we're all supposed to be saying Islam's religion of peace, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is if you go back to the texts, including the Quran, um, Christians and Jews and basically all so-called infidels or in Arabic kafirs um, are to be subjugated. For example, Quran 9.29, it says, calls on Muslims to fight the people of the book, which means Christians and Jews, until they are humiliated and pay tribute. And that's exactly what happened throughout history. 
and I think it's instructive to visit history really briefly. Um, you know, most people are when you so for when I talk about the persecution of Christians in the Muslim world, one of the first responses I get is, you know, yeah, we sympathize, but why would they go and live amongst Muslims? Well, what people don't realize is the whole Middle East, North Africa, Turkey, all those regions were fun, were completely Christian, even more so than Europe before Islam came onto the scene. That was the heart of the Christian world, if you were talking about Christendom. And then in the seventh century, when Islam came into the picture and the great Islamic conquests began, all those countries, like dominoes, fell one by one, Egypt, Libya, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, into Spain. So Islam was in Spain for centuries. Um, it went all the way to France uh, in the famous Battle of Tours. And then into the east, of course, uh, you know, Anatolia, or what we call Turkey, that was the one of the oldest Christian regions. It's where um, St. Paul sent most of his letters to those churches. Uh, that too was conquered, and then Islam spread into the Balkans, until you know as as early as 1683 okay so the you know the first battles i mentioned were in seventh century in the 600s so a thousand years later it was now at vienna um, in austria surrounding it and there was 300,000 jihadis of the ottoman empire who were waging war and by the way all this is um laid out in my book sword and scimitar because i discuss all these battles because they're very important to understanding what happened um at any rate the point is the original christian world before Islam was actually, uh, or the Christian world that we have today was after after three quarters of it was chopped up and swallowed by Islam. So Egypt or Libya, these countries were so Christian, um, and Anatolia and Syria, of course, uh, and now they're Islamic. So what happened? And what we're seeing today is a continuation of what happened. It is the you know sporadic persecution attacks on churches, which is just nonstop, the reports that you mentioned that I write every month, um, every month there is several church attacks in the Islamic world, okay? Uh, just recently, um, in late January, in Sweden, a church, an 800-year-old historic church, was firebombed by Muslims in Stockholm twice, twice over the course of four days, okay? And that's, now if you go into the Islamic world or those regions, uh, just, I think, five days ago in Kenya, five churches were bombed. Uh, so this this is a very common thing. And it goes back again to the scriptures and the text. Islamic law does not like churches. If you're if you if you're a subject and you pay and you accept your third class status and you pay the tribute and so forth, you can keep existing churches. That was the original law when Muslims came in. Uh, but you can't rebuild them, you can't fix them. They're supposed to stay until they collapse. Okay, so that's the that law, and there's also the attacks uh, every t every month. You see attacks on so-called blasphemers, which is basically anyone who says anything critical about Muhammad or Islam. Uh, in Pakistan, in fact, you get the death penalty for speak, uh, speaking uh, negatively about Muhammad. Um, same thing with the laws against apostates. So in Islam, you cannot leave the religion, and you don't convert to it willingly. You're just born into it. So if your father is a Muslim and you're then you're born. There's no baptism or some sort of right. You're just a Muslim. If you try to leave it, um, then the sentence is death. And every month, so every month in those reports, I have several examples of Christians who are being attacked, sometimes killed or imprisoned because they supposedly blasphemed. 
And the same thing with um, Muslims who convert to Christianity and then get attacked and or killed or jailed or harassed. So it's this um, it's this sort of ingrained hostility for the other, specifically and historically the other, the great enemy was Christendom. And it continues to be really the Christians because they're still the ones living in Muslim lands because they're the original inhabitants. So when we heard about what ISIS, the Islamic State, was doing to, you know, the Christians in Syria, well, th those Christians have been there hundreds of years before Islam was even born, before Muhammad came into being. Um, so that's why they're still there. Same thing with the Copts of Egypt and elsewhere. Uh, so that's why you really see this. This uh, So to me, what I'm seeing and what's happening is an ongoing con uh, continuation of the his history that um, that I laid out Um I think I'll stop for now and see if you have any questions. You talk about the conceptual failures of American discourse regarding Islam. Can you talk to us about that and what you consider the conceptual failures on our part? Sure. Well, it's basically, it's part of the overall increasing conceptual failures on everything of American discourse. It's essentially this inability to embrace reality and try to instead, you know, just uh, put in a, a fake narrative that just fits into what you want to believe. So we want to believe, or the powers that be, that Islam is a religion of peace and that Muslims are 100% uh, able to assimilate and live amongst everyone else and there's no problems and so forth. And so when you present the facts as I have, um, you, you'll encounter all sorts of things, just willful denial or I'll be accused of being an Islamophobe, as they call it, um, but not really, not not handling the reality and just accepting it for what it is. I mean, this is what it is. It's a historically documented phenomenon, and by that I mean Islamic aggression, the the ideology of jihad, expansion, subjugation of non-Muslims, infidels, Christians specifically. All of this has such a long historical track record. And like I said, it's in my book, Sword and Scimitar. It has over a thousand um, citations and endnotes because I know this is a uh, controversial topic, so I wanted to make sure that people can see the original source. It's not me who's saying this. But as, long, as well as the history, you have the doctrine. So if you just look at the Quran or the words of Muhammad, any because I, I understand Arabic, you know, and on any given day, all I have to do is go and watch Arabic satellite, listen to some Islamic cleric, often well-respected cleric, um, basically saying everything that I'm saying. Um, Qatar, okay, I, just recently I'm writing about this. Qatar has a fatwa or an Islamic decree on its websites. The actual state of Qatar, it's, it's associated with the state. And it actually calls on Muslims and it says, if you go and live in a Western nation, okay, and so this would apply to migrants, you can take advantage of everything, but you have to hate them because they're infidels. And Islam teaches you to always hate and not intermingle with the infidels unless you do it deceptively because you have to and you want to smile in their face. It literally says that. And that too, but you see, you can't blame them for doing that because that goes back to the Quran. The Quran itself, I think, uh, 64 a chapter or surah 64, ayah verse 4, and it calls on um, believers to hate everyone who doesn't be a believer. And, in, and then it adds in, even if they're your fathers and mothers, brothers, sisters, wives, and children. Okay, so this is where all the problem comes from. And most people may not even understand the scope of the problem because it's being suppressed and hidden 
largely by most of the media. So, you know, when I tell you 340 million Christians are being persecuted around the world, very few people have any clue about that. So it's it's a real growing problem. It's It's got historic roots. It has doctrinal backing. And the with the people that you talk to, and when I, so for example, when I've briefed certain agencies in the U.S. government, they just, I mean, a lot of them are receptive, but very quietly. And others, they just, you know, it's like they have the, they have a paradigm, and within this paradigm are certain fundamental beliefs, like Islam is a religion of peace. Okay, so, but if your if your paradigm, especially if the first premises of it are false, everything's going to be false, and that's why all their measures, as we hear, never work. Since 9-11, think of the billions, if not trillions, that have been spent in counterterrorism, et cetera, et cetera. The reality is it's much worse now. You had ISIS after Al-Qaeda come into being. And, you know, they may be neutralized right now. And to me, I've never cared about their names, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Al-Shabaab, whatever. These are all different manifestations of the same ideology that's existed for 14 centuries. So it's not going to be, you know, taken out that easily. Um, but yeah, it's, people have these kind of blinders. They just don't want to see certain things they don't want to accept. Um, and that's why we continue to be in the situation we are. What do you think is at the root of those blinders? Well, it's just a philosophical worldview. Uh, that's what it comes down to. We want to believe a certain narrative. Um, and the fact is reality doesn't fit that narrative. And so what you do is you suppress reality. I mean, we've seen this with what's happening in social media Facebook and Twitter and all the suppression that's going on because they want people to believe a certain story. And if you say something and you bring something up that actually contradicts that story, throws a wrench in the narrative, well, they just don't want to hear it. They want it out. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's a battle of worldviews. One worldview is fake and it's trying to be foisted with an agenda. The other one is the reality and it's trying to, you know, it's being buried and until, of course, <clears throat> one accepts and works on reality as 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 the working premises, it's you know whatever you do is like putting a square peg in a round hole. It just doesn't work until you have the facts together. It's kind of baffling that there would be such closed ears to what seems to me a human rights issue. I'll give you an idea. Um, I remember I forget the name, but remember there was some gorilla that was shot and killed in, in some zoo. Here in the U.S., I think it was maybe 2016. The same time that happened, something like 21 Christians were marched in Libya um, and had their heads carved off on video by the Islamic State, who was pronouncing all these anathemas against Christianity, calling them infidels, and this is the price you have to pay. So someone actually did all the math and the timing, and it turned out that the U.S. media spent something like 15 times as much time talking about the gorilla that was shot in a zoo than they did about those 20 Christians that had their head chopped off. So I think that that just gives you an idea of how much or or how little really this issue is being sidelined. The powers that be, I think the last people they care about and want to help tend to be Christians. If these stories that I collate and write about every month, and I've been doing this for almost a decade, I started it in July 2011. So in this Ju- this July will be 10 years. So we're talking about 120 monthly reports. And each one has something, you know, at least a dozen, sometimes two dozen anecdotes or stories from all around the world of Muslims persecuting Christians, often quite horrifically, like those Pakistani stories that I was mentioning, or bombings of churches or anything. 
And most of those stories, I get them from very small human rights media, or I translate them from Arabic, and virtually none of them, except really big sensational ones, you know, where two churches are bombed and 50 people are killed in Nigeria or in Egypt or in the Philippines or in Indonesia. Only when those happen, which is, not, you know, rare, it's only every few months, maybe, will you get some talk about it on the mainstream media. If that was the opposite, if this was, let's say, Christians doing that to Muslims, this would be all around the media. This would be such a humongous story. It would be a calamity. It would be a pandemic. Uh, Christians would be condemned habitually. Uh, Muslims would be just presented as, you know, these innocent victims. So there's definitely a bias in in who the persecutor is and who's being persecuted. That plays a huge role in um, the powers that be from speaking about it or doing anything about it. And we'll bring you part two of this conversation tomorrow.